0: The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up at Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code The Gist.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: It's Wednesday, October 21st,
2: 2015. From Slate, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Paul Ryan will take the job of Speaker of the House if a few simple conditions are met. One, everyone's gotta like him. Two, everyone's gotta be nice to him. Three, you can't make him work that hard. Also, you gotta guarantee that he can't be fired. That last part, that's called the motion to vacate the chair. Thomas Jefferson threw it in the rules of parliament. But you know what? Then Back then, chairs weren't so important. Now we've got benches. We've got Ottomans. We've got beanbag chairs. we got those bars you could lean on. You know, those bars that you could lean on. We have really disrupted the chair space. So chairs not that important. Motions to vacate them. You could do away with that. Not every conservative is so happy with Paul Ryan's demands. Here on Fox is GOP strategist Joe Lestingi. He did lay out this, this litany of, of
0: conditions, which is almost holding his caucus at ransom, which is dangerous. And one of his first major ones was that his family will always come before the government, and that's a problem. He will be the third
2: in line for the presidency. He will be in charge of one of the largest governing bodies and most important governing bodies in the world. No, he was elected by his constituents to put their issues first, even before his family. His duty is to the voters first, that is his job, and that comes before everything else. If he wants to be number three, he's gonna have to step up bigger than just these these little demands. He has got to leave, and that's something I'm not saying right now. No, no. If he wants this thankless job that chews up men and spits them out, that turns them into quivering zippity-doo-dah heaps of orange mush, then damn it, he's gotta make his family at least fourth. Now, you know what? That's not even good enough. Leave one for the White Walkers, change another one's name, and put the girl up for adoption. You call yourself a patriot, a public servant, yet you have human interaction with civilian members of the population? That's dangerous, I say. Don't you get it? Don't you get it, Joe Lestingi? Ryan doesn't want the job. He's in an unbelievably enviable position. In fact, he could take his demands even further. His list of demands could include that Raul Labrador... Wear a dress the last Tuesday of every month. What could Raul Labrador do about it? Or if I were Paul Ryan, I'd put in a demand that I'm the only Republican in Congress with two first names. That's right, Duncan Hunter. Lose one. Ed Royce, Ken Buck, Trent Kelly, Tom Reed, Dennis Ross, Scott Austin. You're all now Reagan could be your first name or your last name. I don't care. I'm going to be Paul Ryan. You think I could really get the job done with a Rick Allen walking around confusing people? All right, all right. More demands. More demands. Okay, I get to be the official timekeeper for all congressional marathons. Uh, Jason Chaffetz, I got to see your hands at all time. And, uh, oh, yeah, this guy. Here, can
1: you place this guy? Uh, what I have to say is quite serious. Uh, and what I really want to say is never in my life did I ever believe that our country would be taken over by people like the people who are running it at this day.
2: Yeah, that's Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal can no longer call himself a Republican. If you want me to speak of the House, that guy's just an embarrassment. He's out of the party. You don't like it? Fine. I have the ways and I have the means to turn you down. In fact, that's the name of the committee I chair where I'm very happy, where it actually accomplishes things. And I don't have to hear complaints from a guy named Ted Yoho, Freedom Caucus member Ted Yoho, saying my tax policies aren't conservative enough. For me, Yoho goes back to being an off brand chocolate drink or a terrible search engine or a pirate shanty. I don't care. He stops being a human whose opinions I remotely give a shit about. So you don't like it? Well, I, I, Paul Ryan, the only double first name Republican in Congress, I go back to my position of power without headaches instead of taking a position of headaches with no power. And this guy, Yoho, turns out not to be a Pokemon character. I'm fine with it. Take it or leave it. Now, In an act of selfishness and treachery, I'm going to play with my children. On the show today, I spiel about another prominent politician who allows family to dissuade him from seeking higher office. But now for something completely different. If you watch any of the Republican debates, you get the idea that you would have been a lucky American if you lived in, say...
1: In Florida, they call me Jeb. I've got a record in Florida. We we balanced every budget. We were one of two states that went to AAA bond rating.
2: Or Wisconsin. Well, the voters in Wisconsin elected me last year for the third time because they wanted someone who aimed high, not aimed low. That's what I'll do as president, just like I did in Wisconsin. Or New Jersey.
0: We came in, we balanced an $11 billion deficit on a $29 billion budget by cutting over 800 programs in the state budget. We vetoed five income tax increases during my time as governor. We have a lot of work to do in New Jersey, but I am darn proud of how we've brought our state back.
2: All different ways for different governors, some of them now ex-candidates, to say, I was a great economic steward of my state, and therefore I will revisit my magic upon the country. Now, every once in a while, a usually blowhard blow dried 68 year old real estate developer from New York will turn to one of these governors and said actually you sucked but I think I just hope out there there is a better way to evaluate the economic record of all these governors and in fact maybe even larger if that at all is possible well Ben Castleman wrote about this very issue for 538 he's an economics writer for that fine website and he joins me now hello Ben Hello, Mike. So we've been watching politics and following economics, and this is a perennial. But before you wrote this piece, had you thought much about it?
0: Well, I mean, so I'm from Massachusetts, right? So I lived through Dukakis talking about the Massachusetts miracle. Economic wonderland. Running on that. And then Romney, of course, gets to do it again two decades later. Economic wonderland. Worked out great for both of
2: them. And as we know, everyone in Massachusetts is just
0: three times above the national poverty rate. Oh, it rate. just it rakes yes. in cash all the time. Yes. No, I mean, this is something that governors always talk about. And I, I think that there's an inherent appeal to it, right? That You you know that a senator doesn't control the national economy. You know that Donald Trump, no matter what he might say, is not the one driving the economy. But there's a, a sense that, you know, hey, uh, Pataki, when he was governor here, Jeb Bush, when you were in Florida, that he might have some control over the over the state economy. And of course, they like to talk about it, at least if they have good records, which typically, if you're running for president, you, you probably did.
2: And a good record would pretty much mean unemployment went down. That would be the number one yeah, thing. Yeah, lower about.
0: unemployment, higher incomes. Those are probably the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if house prices went up and you felt richer, that's something that, uh, right. that certainly Bush would, uh, would talk about. Perry, when he was in it, was I, I think I spent more time <laughs> taking Perry seriously than anyone
2: else in America, but he would parse it to the Latino family. Families in our state were better than previously. The black families in our state were the third highest by a kind of advanced poverty metric that not everyone even uses. I want to give them credit and I don't want to say you can't do anything. But before we even talk about this, I have to say I'm pretty skeptical of the ability of any governor and even any president to really affect the
0: economy. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, you should be skeptical. You should be skeptical of both governors and presidents. Jeb has been talking about the the 4% growth he had in Florida and the 4% growth he's going to create in the U.S. when he's president. And any any economist or pretty much any expert will, will tell you governors have very limited control over their state economies. Presidents have very limited control. control over the national economy. That said, they they do have more influence, especially over the longer term, than again, than a senator, than a businessman might. And so it's reasonable to evaluate them. You just have to make sure that you keep it in some appropriate context and you focus on the things that they can control. Okay. So what'd you do? How'd you do it? Well, so I mean, we sort of ginned up four rules. These are really pretty loose guidelines for evaluating governors. But, I mean, just basically focus on more than just their term of office, right? So this this is number one. This is the Jeb Bush problem, right? The economy looked great the whole time that he was in office. You know, if you time it right or oversee a bubble, things will look yeah. great on give, the, uh... give Jeb Bush credit. He nailed the timing perfectly. He yeah. left office and sort of the economy tanked the day he left. I guess he solved all their problems. They people, should have kept him around longer. People were depressed, yeah. No, I mean so so that's a that's a key one, right? Is is pay attention to what happens afterwards. Pretty much anything that governors can do to affect the economy are going to be long term things, right? They can affect tax and business policy. They can affect infrastructure spending, workforce training, education. These are things that take years, even decades, to play out. And so it doesn't make any sense to stop the clock on measuring a governor's term on the on the day that that he or she leaves office. So in
2: two thousand or nineteen ninety nine, Jeb Bush takes office and unemployment or the jobs rate in Florida is pretty much just at the national rate. And it begins to outperform and it consistently outperforms the national rate while he's in office. So
0: you give him credit. Well, if we're going to give credit for that, then again, you probably have to pay attention to what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you might, my friend uh, Jim Tankersley over at the Washington Post did a really great analysis of, uh, of Jeb Bush's time in office and found that the housing bubble accounted for at least half of the gains above the national average that they had, whether you're looking at income or jobs. Obviously, the wealth that people developed there was heavily tied to the housing market. Pretty much all of that was wiped out unemployment rate skyrocketed. In, in the two years after he left office, it, it went from like 3.5% to over 9%. Either. Does he get credit for anything? Did he
2: do a good job? I have this recollection of him being a pretty good governor. But I mean, it's not his fault there was a housing bubble. People are going to want to build houses in the Sun Belt in Florida.
0: I think the thing that you can evaluate governors on is what they do with the hand that they're dealt.
2: Yes. So, so
0: Perry you mentioned earlier right he's a really interesting case the Texas economy did great under him a lot of that was because of the oil boom he really doesn't deserve credit for the oil boom but it does make sense to say well what did he do with the the state economy what did he do with with state finances did he build up the rainy day fund did he you know take advantage of it to invest in infrastructure and education you know those are things that you can evaluate I, I think it'll be interesting in the in the coming years with the boom sort of ebbing to see see how Texas does. I think the evidence so far is that Perry was actually a pretty responsible steward of Texas's finances. It's too late for him now. Perry brings up an interesting point because he would
2: always he'd cut radio ads that aired in New York bragging about Texas. And it was always a Texas winning California losing. I have low taxes and low regulations, high taxes and high regulations. We're kind of poaching their people. If everything Texas or everything Perry was saying he did with Texas was about poaching people from another state, you can't scale that on the national stage. How does that work for a president unless he's going to talk about much better immigration
0: policies towards Nigerians and he's not? I mean, so I think that you have to sort of separate between the economic policies that might work on a national scale Mm -hmm. and then this sort of race to the bottom Tax incentives that you see where states try to you know fight each other over corporate headquarters, you know you see this all the time where states even that border each other, you know Illinois and Missouri will be fighting over which side of the of the river you you put a corporate headquarters uh, in the St. Louis area, for yep. example, so that kind of thing clearly doesn 't scale on the national level. You can argue that that having regulations that are that are friendly to businesses or or having tax policy that is you know uh, that encourages growth or that encourages income growth among you know, middle class families, that those kinds of things could make some sense at a national level. But you know just, just going after incentives doesn't do any good. Chris
2: Christie, one of his bragging points is the number of laws and regulations he cut. Was that
0: smart? Was that dumb? We don't know. He just cut a lot of laws. But how's his economic record? I mean, so Christie is sort of an interesting case, right? New Jersey's economy is so closely tied to New York's that uh, it's really and when it stops being tied to New York, it's pretty tied to Philadelphia. That's right, so. exactly. So it's I mean, like
2: one area right outside of Freehold that it, that's its own thing.
0: I think the thing with Christie that's interesting to look at is his stewardship of the budget. And mm-hmm. I, I said in this piece that one thing to really try to pay attention to is the piece that that governors can actually control, which is is the budget more than sort of general economic figures. And you look at Chris Christie; he inherited a terrible fiscal mess. Uh, and by most measures, basically did nothing to make it any better, right? He he continued to sort of borrow money and and shift things around, pay sort of long-term expenses with like a short-term budget fixes, you know, a lot of kind of funny budgeting there. He, he talks a lot about sort of being a straight shooter, but I think if you kind of dig into what he's done in the budget, there's not a lot of evidence to back that up.
2: Surprisingly, I think you found a couple of candidates who really, really underperformed and it would seem, looking at the graphs, that Huckabee just didn't do a good job.
0: So Huckabee, I think, is actually kind of a, a weird case. Because yes, I've been noticing that. <laughs> it's a weird case in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, of course, for one, he was governor a long time ago. The national economy was a very different story. Arkansas was also in the midst of sort of a real transition under Clinton, actually, the previous Clinton uh, Presidential candidate, right when he was governor of Arkansas, Arkansas really did go through something of a resurgence. Uh, again, not necessarily saying he deserves much credit for that, uh, and then Huckabee kind of, you know, took over in the in the wake of that. The, the one person who really sort of shows up as underperforming economically mm-hmm. as governor ends up being Martin O'Malley on the Democratic side. Yeah. The Maryland economy typically does better than the national economy. And uh, by most measures, it did worse than the national economy. under.
2: Louisiana America. has not been doing well under Jindal compared to the national economy, it doesn't
0: seem. No. Louisiana is another kind of funny one because of the oil industry. Yes. I, I'll say one thing about Jindal. Most of these guys are people who took over in the wake of the recession and all their numbers look really good because, of course, like when you take over and it's 10 percent unemployment, 9 percent unemployment, you're going to look better. Jindal's kind of the opposite. He took over in January 2008 at what turned out to be the very beginning of the recession. We didn't really know it at the time. And so he actually did have to lead Louisiana through a difficult economic period, the lowest unemployment rate of his term was his first day of office. I don't don't know whether he's necessarily done a good job of that stewardship, but at least he sort of had the guts to to lead the state through it and and, uh, run for office anyway. And of everyone running, anyone running anywhere, and to give you credit, you looked at Jim Gilmore's record.
2: (laughs) If you're right, if you showed up on a stage during a debate, if any network said, yeah, you're really running for president, you looked at him shockingly, the one guy, and it's not dramatically, but demonstrably seems to have done better than the national economy and maybe even done better than expectations, is that block of granite, Lincoln Chafee. <laughs> <laughs> Lincoln Chafee,
0: <laughs> clearly our next president. Yeah. You heard it here first, Lincoln Chafee. Well I
2: know I know five thirty eight is a economics and business and sports site. I think the best thing he did was not get sucked in with Kurt Schilling's idea <laughs> to you know, the state gave him funding for video games and it went belly up and it was a huge problem. And Lincoln
0: Chafee was always a skeptic of that plan. The Rhode Island economy has been a total mess for yep. years. I, I think what you see in the data is that Chafee at least didn't it didn't divert further from the national average during Chafee. Whether he did anything to really fix the sort of longer-term problems that they have there, I, I think, is more of an open question.
2: Also, might it be the case that we're just too close to these governors? Like, we we can't really know until 30 years have passed who did a really good job.
0: And we were joking around the office that, uh, that Huckabee is the one guy that we can actually evaluate his, his record. Pataki, too, right? He's been out of office for a few years. You can look back and re- remember the
2: glories of yeah. uh, the
0: Pataki era in New York.
2: Ben Castleman covers economics for the uh, very erudite website 538.com. His article was called How to Evaluate the Economic Record of Governors Who Want to Be President. And long story short, the answer is not well, except for maybe Lincoln Chafee. Thanks, Ben.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
2: You know, a wireless mouse, that doesn't even make sense when you think about it. A mouse is called a mouse, a computer mouse, because the wire makes it look like a tail. But a wireless mouse, it's just what, post-farmer's wife with a carving knife? These are the thoughts I don't even dwell on because when I'm doing things with the click of a mouse, doing things rather quickly. That's convenience. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk via the click of a mouse. Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then you just hand your mail to the mailman or you drop it in the mailbox. Maybe you have a conversation with your mailman about mice. Maybe you don't. But what you don't have to do is go to the post office again. Right now, sign up for stamps.com and use my promo code the gist for a special offer a four-week trial a hundred ten dollar bonus offer it includes postage it includes a digital scale it includes a helpful pamphlet about the origins of terms related to mice it does not but i advise you not to wait i advise you to go to stamps.com and before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in the gist that's stamps.com enter the gist And now the spiel, Joe won't go. We've all heard Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, deciding not to run for president, acceptance. Today, President Joe Biden announced he will not be seeking a shot at the office he has served under these last seven years. As my family and I
1: have worked through the, uh, the grieving process, uh, I've said all along uh, what I've said time and again to others. Uh, that it may very well be that that process, uh, uh, by the time we get through it, uh, closes the window on mounting a realistic campaign uh, for President, that it might close. I've concluded it has closed. It was interesting to me that he
2: framed the entire discussion in terms of his personal ability to muster the resources for a run. Resources meaning, as he framed it, personal, but also, of course, implying financial. This is why Joe Biden is seen as genuine. Though, to be fair, nothing marks you as unopportunistic than turning down an opportunity. Elections actually do have this quality where they seem a little like witch trial by drowning. You know, if she lives, she's a witch. If she drowns, well, that's too bad. In our presidential analogy, those who drown would be guys like Fred Thompson or Tom Eagleton. Fine public officials who now are just remembered as failed presidential candidates or the DA of Law and Order. Joe Biden was savvy enough to know that the press never loves you more than when you're teasing them with a run and could not care less than when you're not within the margin of error of the front runner. But Biden proceeded in his speech saying, I will not run. He proceeded to deliver what could have been, in fact, his announcement speech. I wouldn't be surprised if it was written to be just that, then tucked away in a drawer and repurposed with the opening paragraph declining a run. The speech, by the way, seemed mostly off the cuff, and it did list mostly conventional democratic ideas. It gave those ideas his own rationale. He added a few grace notes also, and some were, I thought, really effective. So I wanted to play, this is gonna be a solid minute from the speech. I thought it was pretty good. When I
1: was growing up, my parents, in tough times, looked at me, and would say to me and my brothers and sister, honey, it's gonna be okay. And they meant it. They meant it. It was gonna be okay. If some of you cover me, I say, go back to your old neighborhoods. Talk to your contemporaries who aren't as successful as you've been. There are too many people in America today, too many parents, who don't believe they can look their kid in the eye and say with certitude, honey, it's going to be okay. That's what we need to change. It's not complicated. That will be the true measure of our success. And we'll not have met it until every parent out there can look at their kid in tough times and say, honey, it's going to be okay, and mean it. It's good rhetoric because it goes right at
2: the most potent feeling that a politician could tap into, insecurity. Politicians play on our fears. They exaggerate our prejudices. The rabble-rouser candidates on the Republican side, Trump, Carson, Fiorina, though Fiorina's fading, they don't have much substance, but they're good at tapping into fears politicians, everyone who seeks attention, also tries to tap into the audience's reptilian brain. At least you do that to get attention. It's hard to explain things. It's hard to move beyond that. I think that's one reason why Trump's appeal might be capped at 20-something. But you do try to get people's attention. And fear and being frightened and being uncertain certainly does that. What Biden is doing in that clip I just played, it's actually kind of meta- He's saying, I know you have insecurities, and what I would do, what a politician should do, is I'll give you tools to address these insecurities. By the way, you know, I will acknowledge that he is using a lot of the same rhetorical tactics as the take our country back crowd, like he's hearkening to a simpler time when the world seems safer. It's actually not true. America has progressed quite a lot from the time when Joe Biden was a kid. He was born in 1942, so when he was 10 or 11 or 12, the Soviets were compiling their nuclear arsenal. School kids were executing duck and cover. It was a decade before the Civil Rights Act. The life expectancy back then was under 70. Color televisions were not yet available for purchase. But the key is that Biden doesn't use insecurity plus the gossamer haze of memory to present false choices. He doesn't tell us we need to do something radical in order to forestall our inevitable destruction. He's pretty humble. He's fairly soothing. He says, we want to get to a place where improvement is possible, where reassurance is plausible. And that is a laudable and achievable aspiration, but it will have to come from someone other than Joe Biden. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's demands include that she fill the job of chair of the committee to eliminate the motion to vacate the chair. Just producer Andy Bowers was all too quick not to fight against that Roberts rule of order called motion to vacate the hair. We had help today from Jennifer Lai, who's frantically motioning something. What are you saying, Jennifer. Pushing, you're pushing, you're standing up, you're stepping to the side, you're sliding some imaginary piece of furniture under the table. I just don't understand what this is a motion for. Anyway, the gist we're here, I'm here to give you news. It's a, it's a judicial ruling on a matter at hand. A judge happens to be a former Secretary of Energy. He will decide whether it's constitutional to test the bodily fluids of those who want to push the motion to vacate the chair to the very end of the agenda. Yes. A member of the cabinet, now a member of the bench, will rule on taking stool samples of anyone who would table the motion to vacate the chair. Will he couch his ruling in case law? Let's hope chest-thumping doesn't shelve plans to make this night stand the test of time. But I have a hutch it will. Um peru de peru do peru and thanks for listening.